Good morning, everyone, and a very warm welcome to Hillhead at the Grosvenor. Our service this morning will be led by our Minister, Katrina. This is the fourth in our Summer Team Builders series, and everything you need to follow the service is both on your printed order service and on the screen. Please stay and have a cup of tea or coffee at the end of the service. Thank you. Uh, as I said, this is the fourth week of our summer pattern, so I'm not going to bore you with explanations anymore. I think most people have been here most weeks, or at least some weeks, so you know what to do, when to do it, so I'll leave you to it. Our call to worship this morning comes from the book of Ecclesiastes, and I'm using the voice paraphrase. Uh, it's called, it calls itself a dynamic equivalence, so it concentrates on getting the meaning rather than an exact translation. God has made everything beautiful for its time. God has also placed in our minds a sense of eternity. We look back on the past and ponder over the future, yet we cannot understand the doings of God. I know there is nothing better for us than to be joyful and to do good throughout our lives, to eat and drink and see the good in all of our hard work is a gift from God. I know everything God does endures for all time. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken away from it. We humans can only stand in awe of all that God has done. So with those words in mind, let's join together in our first hymn. This has gone a bit doolally. We will get there. Not sure why it's showing that and not properly showing the screens. Uh, but we'll join together in our first hymn, Worship the Lord in the Beauty of Holiness.
So let's come to God in prayer. And I'm going to lead us in a prayer that's in a collection that was published when I was a student way back in the early 2000s of prayers that were written by uh, members of the student body of the, of the college I was at. And at the end of that, then we will join together and share in the Lord's Prayer in our own first languages. So let's pray together. Creator God, in whom all that is, all that was and all that ever will be has its origin, we come to praise you. We struggle for words. How can we begin to find a way? All creation declares your glory. Your praise is heard in the cry of a newborn child. Your praise is seen in the wriggling of a toddler. Your praise is heard in, heard in the bleating of sheep and the quacking of ducks. Your beauty is seen in rainbow hues of exotic blooms and the patchwork mix of wayside flowers. The gambling lamb and the playful foal offer a dance of sheer delight simply to be. All creation brings you praise. And so do we. Sustaining God, we do not always notice, let alone share your creativity. We're content to exploit your creation, taking more than we need. We do not bring life, but instead we destroy it or stand by idly as it slowly ebbs away or is contemptuously stuffed out. The songs of joy are silenced and there is an end to dancing. As we stop and see what happens, we find ourselves ashamed. Your wondrous creation is damaged, and so are we. Recreating God, you don't simply repair and restore. Make us new. Give us a new song to sing. Set us on new paths. Give us new hopes, new dreams and new visions, new aspirations, new life. As individuals and together, lead us on in the abundant life, creative and recreating, promised by your Son through the indwelling of your Holy Spirit. And let us continue to pray the emergence of God's kingdom in the words Jesus taught his friends. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The mind is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. So we're going to begin by watching a short film clip. I am not a stranger to the dark. Hide away, they say. 
Cause we don't want your broken parts I learned to be ashamed of all my scars Run away, they say No one will love you as you are But I won't let them break me down to dust I know that there's a place for us For we are glorious When the sharpest words wanna cut me down I'm gonna send a blood, gonna drown him out. I am brave, I am bruised, I am who I'm meant to be. This is me. Look out, cause here I come. And I'm marching on to the beat I drum. I'm not scared to be seen. I make no apologies. This is me. shaman few people few people haven't it's an interesting exploration of the barnum and bailey circus in which these people were freaks freaks to be laughed at freaks to be curious about and yet it's a song that has become an anthem for those people in our society 
who have scars, visible or invisible, who don't conform to beauty stereotypes. Um, there was a, a ladies' full Monty one-night-only thing that was done by women who had had breast cancer um, showing off their scars. I'm not that brave. You're not going to see my scars. But it's a film that raises a lot of questions. And one of the comments that's made about it, there is only one of those people who we see who are the freaks who is actually genuinely affected by the condition they portray. Can you guess which one it was, having seen that? as what one genuine person. The rest are all, in the words of the actors, and I apologise for the politically incorrect language, crept up. One of those people was genuine. Any ideas? Okay, it was the man with dwarfism. You can't fake that one. Everybody else was faked. But the conditions they reflect are not faked. This is a genuine bearded lady. She is, I believe, a Muslim. And she lives in the north of England. And she is a classroom assistant. And she is happily married. I wonder, you don't have to say this out loud, but I wonder what words come into your head when you look at her to describe her appearance. And here we have a model. Two photographs of the same woman. One with makeup, one without. She has a condition called vitiglio, which means that her skin tone is a mix of black and white, brown and white. And she, like some other models with vitiglio, are starting to stand up for themselves and saying, no, we'll not disguise ourselves because we believe we are beautiful as we are. Jessica Rousel, Rowell, 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 not Rousel, I think, a uh, medal-winning cyclist for Team GB in the 2012 Olympics who suffers from a condition called alopecia or lives with a condition called alopecia. I shouldn't say she suffers from it. I don't have the right to, to make that judgment. She lives with it. She is a cover girl for a lot of wig companies. The picture bottom right is her wearing a wig. The picture top left, I think the beauty shines from her eyes. But what do you see? And here is another top model, this time from America. The thing is, she has an extra chromosome. She has Down syndrome. And if you see these photos from, gosh, quite a few years ago, there was a documentary, I think, on BBC Three in the days when it still was a channel. Britain's missing top model. Young women with different physical disabilities who wanted to have a go at modelling. So what do we mean when we talk about beauty? And what do we mean when we say that everybody 
is made in the image and likeness of God. The woman with alopecia of Atiglio. The man with dwarfism or Down syndrome. The person with a stoma bag. The person with an uh, insulin pump. What does it mean if they are made in the image and likeness of God? And we say that God is beautiful. And that we say God made everything and everyone beautiful in their time. And if we think about those things, what does it mean when we worship God, who is beautiful, but also who is beauty? I'm going to use a recorded song. Um, you do have the words on the sheet if you want to follow along. And we're just going to sit and listen, and if you know it and would like to join in, feel free. Scripture to 
You see. Today we have a story that involves beauty. Many generations have come and gone since the time of Moses. And the Hebrews are established as a nation. But they're now a nation in exile. They are in Persia, in Babylon, in modern-day Iran. And there is a very powerful king in charge of the nation. And he reminds me of a certain president, I have to say. And he decides he's going to tell everybody how marvellous he is. So he organises, not one day, not one week, but six months of events to demonstrate his greatness. Come and see the best country. Come to the best banquet. We have the best animals, the best plants, the best, well, you name it, they had it. And this culminates in a decision to show off the fact that he has the best wife. So he throws a huge banquet for all these officials and he summons his wife, Vashti, to come along. Meanwhile, she has had to entertain all the wives of these big officials. So they've been doing whatever they did. And frankly, she's not having any of this. So she just says, no, I'm not coming. You do not cross Xerxes. If he says come, you come and you come quickly. If he says jump, you say how high. So what does he do? Because now he looks awfully stupid in front of his important and powerful guests. So he consults very quickly with his officials and says, you must banish her, because if you do not banish her, all the other women will get above their station and think that they too can defy their husbands. So that's what he does. The trouble is, he starts to miss having a wife. So what's he to do? Because if he takes Vashti back, he will look very silly. But if he doesn't, he'll be very lonely. So again, talks to his advisors and they say, this is what you do. You round up all the beautiful young women in the country who are eligible to be married. You bring them into the palace and each day we will bring one to you and you can decide if you like her or not. If you like her, you marry her. If you don't like her, we send her off to the harem. And among those was a young Jewish girl called Esther. Or at least that's the name we know her by. It's not her Hebrew name. And she went through a year of beauty treatments. Skin, hair, makeup, nails, all the things I absolutely hate. But hey, she went through it and maybe she likes it because some people love that kind of thing. And then it came to be her day to be taken to the king. And she was. And he liked her. And he married her. And the story could have ended there. But it didn't. Because the country was not a happy country, as you can imagine, if you've got the best king with the best everything. And there was a plot to do away with the king. Now, Esther had an older uncle called Mordecai who heard about this plot. And so he told Esther, who told the king, and it was overthrown. And this was a good thing, and the king was very happy, obviously. And he wrote down, he ordered his officials to write down in, in the official records that Mordecai had saved his life. Time went on a bit further, and another powerful man grew up called Haman. 
Now, he became so powerful, he was almost like number two to King Xerxes. And he wanted everybody to bow down to him. In fact, he even got an edict from the king to say, everybody must kneel in my presence. And Mordecai said, I'm not doing that. I will only bow down to God. Well, she doesn't say I'll only bow down to God because there's no God in the, in the book of Esther. So I made that bit up, sort of. But that's the intent. He refuses to bow down to a human. This is not what he does as a Hebrew and Israelite. And Haman is furious and he wants to do away with all the Jews. So he starts building a great big gallows. And Mordecai tears his clothes, puts ashes in his hair and sits outside the palace. And news comes to Esther about her uncle. And so she sends a message to find out what's going on. And he tells her, he says, if, if you do nothing, if you do nothing, we'll still, this will all still work out and we'll be rescued. But maybe, maybe this is why you've come to this place for this time, for this purpose. And as I say, there is no mention of God or prayer in this book of the Bible, at least not in the, the Western Bible version that we have. But we do have fasting. So Esther says to Mordecai, right, you and, and all your friends, you fast, me and my maid servants, we will fast. And then we will act. So what does she do? She plans a banquet for two people. For Xerxes, the best king ever, and Haman, you will bear down to me. And they come, and they, they have the banquet. But I've missed a bit, because I'm getting a bit carried away here. Esther first has to go to King Xerxes to ask him if this is possible. Now, this is a dangerous thing to do. Remember what happened to Vashti? She refused to go, and she got banished. If Esther turned up and wasn't welcome, she too would get banished. So it was a very risky thing to do. So I shouldn't have missed this bit out, because it's one of the key points to the story. So she goes to the king, and he's pleased to see her. And she says, I want to have this banquet. And he says, yeah, okay. That's, That's great, thank you. So they have the banquet. Esther, loads of amazing food. Xerxes and Haman. And, she said, and Xerxes says, well, well, what is it you want from me, Esther? And he said, come back to another banquet, just the two of you, and then I'll tell you. So Haman goes off, as you can imagine, stretching, hey, guess what, everybody? I, just me, I've been invited to a banquet with just the king and Queen Esther. Aren't I important? Ha, look at me. So they go to the banquet. And in the course of the banquet, Esther tells the king about this plot to destroy her people. And the king is horrified. And Haman realises he's been caught. And so when it comes out what's happened, Haman is executed on his own gallows. And Esther and her people continue to live without hassle well for a while anyway so we're going to have some music and we are free to move around or stay put as we desire
Among the many challenges we face when we come to look at the scriptures is that the stories they tell us reflect cultures so very different from our own. Cultures in which women and children had little or no intrinsic worth, they could be traded. Cultures in which a man could divorce his wife for no better reason than actually she didn't cook a very good meal or he didn't like the way she looked. Whether they were Hebrew, Egyptian, Persian or Roman or any other of the societies we meet in the scriptures, power and authority lay with the men. And that makes the few stories we do have of women especially significant. And it can also make them problematic. Beautiful, brave Queen Esther. She was a Sunday school favourite when I was growing up. And the Scripture Union resource that we're using to have as a springboard for our services this week has her as the one woman they have chosen. And it's good that they have a woman amongst all the men. But it also disturbs me quite a lot. What is good about this story is that neither Esther or her uncle Mordecai are powerful people, like the opposite. They're descended from the tribe of Benjamin, they're part of a nation in exile, and they have no social standing and little, if any, influence. Unlike Joseph and Moses, we met the last two weeks, they're never going to be the leaders of the nation. But through their combined actions, they will prove to be the saviours of their nation for their generation. So as a story about little people making a big difference, it's hugely important and it's worth thinking about. But it isn't that simple for all sorts of reasons. And I realised as we were trying to think about being a team together, in which every single person is valued and affirmed and encouraged to play their full part in the flourishing of the whole, there were questions that at least I needed to think about. And maybe we do too. I wonder how many of you like to watch The Voice singing competition on television. Does anybody watch The Voice or The Voice Kids? Has anybody watched it in the past? Okay, so you've seen it in the past, even if you're not currently watching it. So the premise of the blind auditions at the start of this series is that the judges can't see the people who are singing. All they have to go on is a voice that they hear. So the idea is that they're not going to be judging by physical appearance. It shouldn't matter if you're large or small, black or white. It shouldn't matter what you wear. It shouldn't matter what you look like. And there are a few people, it has to be said, who have taken part in this who do have evident physical disabilities. There's been a blind woman, certainly. There may have been others who I haven't seen. But you know what actually is a beauty contest? Because everybody comes out onto that stage dressed, quaffed, made up to be presentable at least to the audience. 
And once you get past those blind auditions, it all starts to be about who's got the commercial voice, who's got the voice that can sell CDs or downloads. It's not quite as innocent as perhaps it first appears. And if you don't fit, you don't even make it to the live finals or live semi-finals. Well, maybe I'm a bit cynical, but maybe I'm not. The story of Esther, of course, involves a literal beauty contest. Reality television is, to some degree, a beauty contest. But whether it's about physical beauty or some other kind of desirable attributes, very often life is a bit of a beauty contest. I've chosen to use illustrations from my own life this Sunday, not because I think they're particularly better than anybody else's, they just happen to be the stories I know best. So most of you will know that twice in my life I have been through the Baptist settlement process, or as it's known amongst most Baptist ministers, Baptist blind date. And what you have to do as a minister is within a maximum of two sides of A4, so you get very good at shrinking the font size and the margins, Describe who you are, how you were called to God, your gifts and skills, your experience, your qualifications, and why this church that your name will be sent to might consider you. The churches, likewise, are invited to submit a profile. They don't have a page limit or a word limit, but they vary. I've been sent by one church a full-colour, glossy publication Lots of photographs of everything they did. And then there was the church that told me about the arrival of the motor car in the early 1900s that had caused the main road to become a side road because a new road was built to carry the motor cars. And there was a church that sent me a job description that frankly even Jesus would have struggled to fulfil. The second time I was going through the settlement process, the time which ultimately led to me coming here, I wasn't doing particularly well. I had met some churches, but nothing was really gelling. And somebody very well-meaning said, let me have a look at your profile. So they took it away and they said, it's got an awful lot of bullet points. It's awfully factual. It's not very attractive. Basically, what they were saying was I needed to be more winsome, to play the game, to be part of the beauty pageant. So how do you decide or discern? Is it about selling ourselves, whether we are ministers or whether we are churches? Or is it actually about seeking the mind of God, the mind of Christ, for us here and now? So, for the record, the first church that called me was the one that told me about the coming of the motor car and how the main road on which their chapel stood had become a side street and how that had had a huge impact on their life ever since. And the second church that called me, I can't quite
quite remember if it was bullet points exactly, but it wasn't far off. And it was a list of attributes and desires that kind of resonated with my own. There has to be a place of not being beautiful. If we are about God's work, about listening for God's voice, how do we discern that? And what does that mean if we think we are a team together on God's side? Challenging stuff. Beauty is skin deep. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. But in God's sight, every single one of us is beautiful. Again, many of you know that outside of church, I hold a number of roles in Baptist life. And one of those is as a trustee for the Baptist Building Fund, which is a charity that makes loans to churches for building projects. Interest-free, but with a thank offering at the end. Way back, when I was still serving down south, I was invited by the Gender Justice Group of the Baptist Union of Great Britain to consider joining this charity as a trustee because there had been an initiative to encourage more women to get involved in that kind of area of Baptist life. And after all, I used to be an engineer and I was dealing with a church with a building project, so probably I would be okay at it. When I moved to Hillhead, I stepped down from that post. It seemed too far to go and I wasn't sure that I contributed anything apart from being a woman anyway. But after a couple of years, they approached me again and said, we're making a lot of loans to churches in Scotland. And it's true. Trust me, we do make a lot of loans to churches in Scotland. We really would value somebody in Scotland to come and join us as a trustee. So I agreed. So I go to these meetings three times a year. And usually I'm the only woman there. There are two other women trustees, but they usually find an excuse not to be there. And I sit amongst these clever men who are lawyers and planners and architects and bankers and goodness knows what. And I wonder what on earth I contribute as a woman, as a minister. I can't say as someone from Scotland because actually they are very pro-Scotland. Um, I'm just very ignorant. So they ask me questions and I just go, oh, I don't know. But what am I there for? Am I there as a token in some way. And as I've reflected on the story of Esther, I've kind of asked that question as well. Has the scripture union included her in some way as a token woman? We have to have a woman, so let's have Esther because she's kind of nice and she fits the thing. You mean, you wouldn't really want Deborah who goes around getting people stabbed or whatever, would you? Or jail with her temp peg or Deborah was a judge, jail with a temp peg. I shouldn't go off script, I can never do it. You choose very carefully which woman you have. It's a challenge, though, isn't it? We talk about diversity. I talk about diversity and inclusion. But it's not so easy to really live it out. A few weeks back, I was at a conference of women ministers, women Baptist ministers in Birmingham. And there were over 50 of us. And around about 10 or a dozen of them were black. 
And one of them told us a story from the Windrush generation of a person who, in their own Baptist union in the West Indies, had been a person of authority, a person who held a high position. And when they came to Britain, in this case to England, they joined a Baptist church where they were made welcome, which was not always the case, and they started to settle in. And after a year, somebody said to them, it's great, we, we've, we've found the job for you. And they said, oh yes, that's great, thank you, what is it? Yes, um, you can wash the cups and saucers after morning coffee on a Sunday. The person telling the story was incredibly gracious. They didn't assume that this was deliberate racism or deliberate demeaning, but rather it was a story about ignorance, about presumptions, and actually a kind of superiority that comes from being in the majority, whether that's gender or race sexuality, or anything else. It's quite challenging, isn't it? If gender and ethnicity are two very visible and very obvious ways we accidentally discriminate or exclude, then what does happen if we think about sexuality or ability, disability, about educational qualification, about age, about social standing? We know, we do know, that it's not enough to say we're inclusive, to say that we welcome all to do all things. But it's not always so easy to identify, encourage and empower those same people to take up the, the roles that would allow them to express the gifts and the potential we see within them. And it is tricky, and I don't get it right, but it is something maybe we need to remind ourselves of just a little bit as we start to renew rotors, look at people to take roles and so on. Nine years ago, this church made a very courageous and very prophetic decision. I hope it's not one you regret, but you called me. And I still have this rather bizarre honour of being the first accredited Baptist woman minister in sole pastoral charge of a church in Scotland. It's a mouthful, and it is a privilege. Don't get me wrong, it is a privilege. It humbles me, and it challenges me. But it also troubles me, because nine years on, it's still true. I'm still the only one in that sense. But what else? It's not enough, is it, to say... Yep, we've got women in Baptist ministry and, and we have one woman in sole pastoral charge. What next? What next for the union? What next for our church? So let's have a look at Esther and Mordecai. I've waffled on enough. We get to the turning point in the story and Mordecai sends a message to Esther, of which we usually only hear the last little bits. So I'm going to read it to you in the NRSV, as it actually is in the scripture. Do not think, because you are in the king's house, that you alone of all the Jews will escape. 
For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Usually, all we hear is the last bit, for such a time as this, or maybe it is for such a time as this. I wonder if any of you have ever had that said to you, particularly in a Christian context, but in any context. It was said to me when I was in Hugglescote and the building was unsafe and had to be closed. And after all, I was a former engineer and a former risk assessor, so maybe it was for such a time as this. And it was said to me a few years back in Glasgow, when the proximity of the manse to the Beetson was remarkably serendipitous. Sometimes we say these things without really stopping to think what it is we're saying. And it is a mixed blessing to have those words spoken to you. It is uh, great that God is involved in the coincidence of these events. It was fantastic for me to live so close to the Beetson. Absolutely. And maybe God's hand was in that in some way. And I hope that Hugglescope found it useful having me as they went through their building closure and sale and demolition. But to have those words spoken to us can be scary. Unsettling. Who, me? A bit more like Moses, I suspect, than Esther. But if we only focus on those last words, we don't get the whole story. Because what we're told is that God is going to act, and God will act, whether Esther takes up the challenge or not. But if Esther chooses not to take up the challenge, she'll lose out. Perhaps I can re-express it in a kind of paraphrase like this. You, individually, collectively, might be God's plan A here. The person or the people who are best equipped and best placed to fulfil what I desire. What God desires. If you don't, if you opt out... Well, God will find an equally good plan B, but you'll not be part of it. Now, that's hard to hear. I find that hard to hear. So can we turn it round and make it into a positive rather than a negative? I think we can. What if we have it more like this? You know what, folks? You're the ones that God wants to take on this challenge of being church of doing mission, of being prophetic, whatever it is. So take hold of it with both hands so you don't later wish you had. The story of Esther and Mordecai has much we could dig into and time has run away with us as usual. But just a few thoughts to finish. I wonder who are the Mordecais in our life? who bring messages to us. Whose are the voices of those who are powerless? They can't do it themselves. 
and yet they're wise and insightful and can call upon us to act. And how then do we respond? What unique opportunities come our way because of the circumstances in which we find ourselves? How can we be God's agents of transformation here, now? May the God who sees in each one of us beauty and worth deliver all of us from a beauty contest mentality. May the God who delights in diversity and equips each of us for works of service lead us from unintended tokenism to conscious, inclusive diversity. And above all, may the God of Mordecai and Esther enable and empower us to play our unique role as the body of Christ in this place for such a time as this and to the glory of God's name. Amen. We sing together, Beauty for Brokenness.
For our prayers this morning, we're going to go on an imaginary journey in which we bring to God what we see, what we hear along the way. So if you find it helpful, then please do close your eyes and let us come to God in an attitude of prayer. If you have a a happy place or a favourite place, Use your imagination to take you there now. And if there isn't one such place for you, then think of the kind of place where you feel most relaxed or alive and go there in your imagination. And now take a few moments to take in the atmosphere. What can you see? What can you hear? What can you smell? Is it warm? Is it cool? Are you alone or with others? Allow yourself to feel this place and what it is that makes it precious or safe or beautiful or whatever else it may be. And in the quiet of your heart, your mind, share this with God. And now leave that place and journey into the everyday to somewhere ordinary, a place of routine, maybe home or or where you work, a shop or a bus. Again, allow yourself to feel this place. What you can see, what you can hear, what you can smell. who's there, what they are doing or or not doing, what is good and life-giving, what's broken or disordered, what's just plain ordinary. Again, 
in your heart or in your mind. Share this with God. And let's travel on once more, this time into the world beyond home or work or church, and to a place of hurt, injustice or suffering. It may be a place or a situation you know really well, or it may be somewhere that you have heard about or read about in the news, but never actually visited. But wherever it is, try to feel that place too. If it's somewhere you know, what can you hear and see and smell? And wherever it is, what emotions do you feel? What is the brokenness or ugliness that mars this place? What might bring wholeness and beauty to this place and to these people? And what would that feel like? Again, in your heart and in your mind, share this with God. And now, come back to this place to this time and hear these words spoken to us by a wise old uncle. If you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise from another place. Who knows, but that you have come to this place, to these places, for such a time as this. And in your heart, in your mind, listen for the quiet whisper that might just be the voice of God. Beautiful God, who declared all creation to be good, who delights in diversity, and who in Christ renews all things 
turn our imaginings into prayers and our prayers into action to the glory of your name. Amen. Generous God, who fills the earth with so much beauty and so much creativity, we have brought these our gifts of money to help express your love and share your good news. So please accept them and please help us to use them wisely to the glory of your name. Amen. So our closing hymn, God is good. God is truth. God is beauty. Praise him.
May the God who is good bless us with confidence in who we are. May the God who is truth bless us with insight into how we might live. May the God who is beauty bless us and through us all things with the recreation made possible through Christ our Lord. And may we live the hope we profess now and always. Thank you.